I love it. And the reason I love it though is because I'm prepared for it, I'm trained in it. I, if I don't have an area of expertise, I either don't take on the case or I get the expertise that I need in a really serious way. And that's why it invigorates me. When I see a problem, um, it, it, it makes me excited about it. If I have a complicated case, that is the kind of thing where I'm like, bring it on. Yes, I'll meet with the family. I'll call in a consultation with someone else. I'll make it work. Caution, you will begin to love your nine to five with this show. Join us as we explore and discover your unique strengths and learn to apply them to your daily business activities with your host, Shmuel Septimus. Welcome to this next episode of the Love Your 9 to 5 show. For this episode, we're going to change this up a bit. We're going to be focusing on our Working website where we are bringing you professionals who have been successful in their careers and really defined their unique uh, paths professionally. And they're going to share with you, the listener, and those who are following on the website as well, they're going to be sharing with you what it's like to be a day in the life of their professions how did they really get started? What does it really mean? What are they doing day to day in their professions? And maybe a little bit of some industry know-how and whatever else they bring to the table. So for our very first in this segment, which will be found on, on jworkin.com and also be found on the regular website, uh, shmolseptimus.com. So today is my pleasure to bring on Dr. David Rosmerin. Dr. Rosmarin is an assistant professor to the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and is the founder and the director of the Centers for Anxiety, which has offices in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Rockland County with a staff of over 20 clinicians servicing over 500 new patients per year. The Center for Anxiety is the largest provider of private fee-for-service outpatient mental health services to the Orthodox Jewish community in the world. Dr. Rosmarin is a board-certified clinical psychologist and a regular columnist in the Hamodia and Mishpacha magazine. His clinical work and research has received media attention from ABC, NPR, Scientific American, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, and most recently, of the Love Your 9 to 5 show. With no further ado, I'm really excited to bring on Dr. Rosman. Dr. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I was just going to say, I have to add nine to five to my bio now. Absolutely. This, is, this may be the most pivotal point of your career. Now, uh, if you don't mind, before we even delve into it a little bit, I know this is a little bit new, you know, this is a new for our listeners. They'll see that the format is a little bit different. Um, but the goal is a little bit different. So before we even jump into the industry, can you give our listeners a little bit and our viewers as well, um, a little bit of a background for you of what is life personally and professionally? Again, just a brief overview. Of my personal professional life? Yes. Okay. So I have uh, an admittedly um, complicated and busy professional life in that I'm doing both academic work here in Boston, where my family lives, and also clinical work in a different state in New York, um, in the in the from community and also beyond. So okay. that's admittedly uh, complicated and uh, not something that I would recommend other people do unless they have pretty unique life circumstances. Okay. Um, um, 
in fact, most of my colleagues, almost all of them, are split. They'll either do academic work or they're going to do more clinical work. Sometimes people do a little bit of teaching alongside clinical work. Sometimes people do a little bit of clinical work alongside an academic uh, portfolio, but to be doing um, um, uh, them both sort of at a large scale is, um, is not something that I would recommend really for anyone. <laughs> <Quite> <laughs> <good>. <laughs> so the, in short, the message is don't try this at home. Somehow it's working, but this is definitely a very unique uh, path that you were able to charter out for yourself. Yeah, and, and it is it is very unique in that I've had uh, substantial philanthropic funding both here in the in at, at the Harvard Medical School doing my research and also to get my program off the ground in in New York, um, and that was really just uh, uh, you know light, lightning strikes, and I I'm very thankful and grateful for it. But um, without sort of really um, unique circumstances, I never would have been able I never could do what I'm what I'm currently doing. Got it. Okay. Um, having said that. So again, so I'm, you know, entering the professional world, maybe for the first time, this might be my first career and I've met psychologists in my life. I've come across them and I have a vague idea of what a psychologist is. And I think that that might be for me. So before we even get too far, what is a clinical psychologist and who might be the right type of person or the right type of fit? Not as a client, we could talk business afterwards, but as a professional uh, provider. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, would you mind if we even broaden the question to be who would be a good mental health services provider? Let's do that. Because sometimes people become a psychologist, which is a doctoral level clinician, somebody who has either a PhD or we call, we call a PsyD, a doctorate of psychology. And um, there are some minor differences between those, but basically they are, uh, in order to do that, we're talking about a three or four year undergraduate degree plus um, uh, a master's degree of two years or so, and then a doctorate degree of another uh, between four and six years. Um, but people don't have to go through all that schooling in order to become a clinician, a mental health services provider. Um, in fact, by and large, I recommend that individuals from our community uh, don't get a doctorate and really uh, do a master's level training. Um, okay, and why is that? Well, let me tell you what the options are for master's level training first. There's okay. mental health counseling in New York, an MHC degree. Okay. There's master's in social work, an MSW degree. Okay. Um, it's less common in the East Coast, but on the West Coast, we have uh, licensed mental, uh, licensed marriage and family therapists, LMFTs. And those are all master's level clinicians. Um, the reason why, to answer your question, I would yeah. recommend in general, again, there certainly is a room for psychologists within the community, outside the community. Um, and I think for many people, it is a good fit. But the vast majority of orthodox clinicians from people who want to become counselors don't need a doctorate um, in order to do what they want to do. Okay, so those who would go through... The, all the expense and the time of getting a doctorate, what would be the reason for somebody to do that if it's not clinical? The primary reason that people have told me is prestige. And um, I'm not sure that there's a lot more, frankly, for a psychologist. And if you want to you know, go to medical school and get an MD and you know, become a psychiatrist, or, um, or if you want to become a professor, then you work in the academic system, uh -huh. then for sure. 
so if someone's just focused on being a provider, you know, everybody thinks that, um, you know, that we could figure out everybody else's problems. And if only I was actually licensed to do so, and I could actually charge somebody for my services, you know, I'd be that much better off. So if I'm at the provider level and I'm decided that maybe a career in mental health is for me, um, but I'm looking for the shortest, most efficient way. In other words, I don't want to cut corners if it's not the right thing to do. Right. On the other hand, I don't want to go through college and uh, get a doctorate degree and a postdoc, and, and I don't want the academic route. I just want to be able to get there in an efficient way. So what would be the right way to do it? And then we'll get back to my other question is who should be entering this to begin with? Great. Yeah, those are great questions. If, if a person's goal is simply to develop a caseload, of, let's say, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 hours a week, uh, more than 30 hours a week, by the way, I don't think anybody should be doing individually. I know some people who do it and, uh, they're clients of yours. <laughs> <laughs> no, but their, their clients end up coming to me, you know, six months later because their therapists are burned out. So you're saying a there's a limit to how much a person can effectively give of themselves and help other people. Yeah. My limit is like, you know, 10 to 12. Frankly, um, people have to know themselves. If somebody's doing more than 25, I start to get nervous. If it's more than 30, that, that to me is a red line. So hold on, let's jump into that for a minute. So if someone's adding up the dollars and cents and figuring out okay. uh, the limitations, so can you share a little bit of how you've tackled this problem yourself? Um, of, of limiting the number of uh, therapy uh, sessions? Limiting the number of clinical hours that you're doing, but at the same time, not limiting the growth of your business and more importantly, the people whose lives you can help and impact. Yeah, 100%. Um, let me just go back to the first question, then we'll, then we'll deal with this. Um, the, path, the easiest path to get into this field, um, there's two things that people have to keep in mind, okay? There's credentialing, and then there's training. And okay. those, are, those are two separate things in mental health, unfortunately. The credentialing gives you a license to practice. If you don't have a license to practice, please don't practice. There are so many, there are unlicensed clinicians. That's why it's called practice. That's why it's called practice. <laughs> and if you're considering, and just as a public health announcement, if you're considering going to a therapist or if you do go to the therapist and they don't have a license, find someone else. A licensing board creates um, somebody who you can go to if there's a problem. It creates a set of standards. It creates, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, just convention, but it does create an overarching supervising body. And even if it's in some cases somewhat of a lame duck in certain states, it's mm -hmm. better than nothing. Having nothing is like going on a trapeze without a net. Got so it. in Don't terms of getting licensed, typically you need to have a master's degree. So an undergraduate degree, it could be a BTL or it could be an online degree from really anywhere um, uh, with seminary credits as well. Beyond that, you're looking at a master's degree. Social work is two years. Mental health counseling, two years. The MFT, I think, is two years. Each of those, though, that, that'll give you, sorry, after, the, after that, after that two-year master's, there's a, typically a two-year period where people need to work to accrue hours under uh, supervision. Okay. People are usually paid for their time, but they're not paid very highly. They're not paid um, substantially, depending on their skill set. It can be uh, a little bit higher, but you're not going into private practice for at least 
um, two years after a master's level. But all of that is just credentialing. That's not skills. There's okay. another thing, which is actually, do you know what you're saying? Do you know how to handle a mental health crisis? And do you know how to handle a family issue? Do you know how to handle a psychotic break? Do you know how to handle a suicidal patient or somebody who's injuring themselves or someone who's having a panic attack, either in your office or right before, and that's what they need help with? Someone who's severely depressed or a woman who is pregnant with her, I don't know, third, fourth baby and cannot get out of bed because she's experiencing perinatal depression and her husband is going bananas. How do you handle that situation? So you're, the reality is the amount of things that are learned in the credentialing process and even in the two years post-supervision, typically for master's level clinicians is not going to be enough to really okay. make a difference in the lives of patients, of clients. For that, people need certificates or additional trainings. Um, one thing that I really commonly recommend people to do is to get dialectical and behavior therapy training. That's called DBT. Okay. Um, what does that mean? It's a, a special training to help people deal with complex symptoms like acute anxiety and depression and self-injury and suicidal patients and interpersonal difficulties and anger. It gives the people just a lot of great tools to work with, um, to be able to do that. And while it's not, um, you know, the only thing that people can do. Um, it is, uh, it, it isn't, it's, it's not, it's not inexpensive. It's probably another 2,500, uh, maybe even $3,000, $3,500, including travel and time off, maybe more, but it's worth it. Um, another so thing, is yeah, that, is that, I'm sorry, but is, is that like an EMT for like mental health issues, uh, like emergency room doctor? It's a little bit more than an EMT. It's a set of four, if you really want to know, it's a set of four specific skills, um, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, um, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. And the clinicians are taught how to do that and how to implement it in a real way with patients. Mm -hmm. So once somebody is credentialed and once somebody uh, finds the, uh, you know, does the two years you know, getting their, their time, so to speak, <clears throat> excuse me, until then they still need to get actual real skills. So like that's when, that's when the real training and the real honing of the skills really only starts um, at that point. Yeah. I mean, you could do it concurrently with the two years of training, mm -hmm. but I often tell people, if you're going to go into mental health, take an extra $10,000. Okay. Put it in a bank account and spend it on yourself over the next four or five years on professional development that has nothing to do with your tuition. It has nothing to do with anything else. And you will get every penny back and more with tremendous dividends over the following 10, 15, 20 years of your career. So perhaps, again, I know you're speaking from the mental health uh, perspective, but you know that that advice is probably very good advice in any right. career that you go into. The problem is that when you're going into a career, many times your reason why you're going in or they, there's an immediate pressing financial need sometimes. And sometimes we feel like we don't have the luxury to do that. You can cut it down to 5,000. Right? No, you can cut it down to 5,000 or you can squeeze out the 10 anyway and figure out a way. Go into debt, even if that's a terrible thing, which it is. But if you, this is an investment, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not 
you're not spending the money on a car, you're spending the money on yourself. And that's something that you can you keep with you forever. So now, now we have, so at least, you know, understanding the process, the, the process a little bit. So you need to have a basic degree, you need to go for some sort of um, master's degree in one of the fields that you mentioned. You need to get an you know additional time, um, you know, training, and then a certificate on top of that, or some sort of additional specialized training, and spe- and really using what you just said, you know, putting aside a fund. Um, it doesn't matter who puts the money in there, but as long as you're spending money on yourself and growing professionally. Now, some people just see the end result and see, you know, someone has an office in their basement or an office building or whatever it is. And all they're doing, you know, is they have very little overhead. Maybe they see a few people a week and, you know, they are able to get, let's say, private pay uh, clients. And wow, they see the end result and they say, oh, wow, that would be amazing if I could do that. How do, is there any guideline that you would give for someone to figure out, is this something that I should be going into at all? Um, or is this something that's clearly not for me? Do you want to deal with the financial side of it first? You're leaning towards that before. Let's um, do that first. That's also, one of the, that's also one of the considerations as to whether once somebody should go into the field or not. Okay, let's do okay. it. So on the financial side of it, um, the more specifically skilled a person is, the better they're going to do. So, for example, if you, are, if you get skills in dealing with children with autism, you're going to have, and you like doing it, um, right. you're going to end up getting um, a market um, of people who are coming to you who have autistic children. Um, okay, adults. so you're saying niche, uh, a niche market within mental health. Yes. I would very strongly recommend that people get specialties, and this has um, financial ramifications. Because okay. somebody who's a general therapist, there's only so much that the market is going to bear for right. general supportive therapy. In some locales, it's a lot. Like if you're in Manhattan, I know there are general therapists who charge 250 even $300 an hour. Wow. Um, but specialists can provide a lot more um, specific needs, and um, they're a lot more... Um, uh, you know, sometimes people have been to general therapists, they've spent, uh, you know, either hundreds or thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. not happy with the results. And then if you have a specialty, then that could be something that you can actually really provide benefits for. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, as a consumer, and I'm not saying that I am, but thinking as a consumer, <laughs> um, at the end of the day, we, we'd prefer not to have to be bothered with knowing anything about what the provider has as far as skills, as far as credentials. We would pay a premium for someone who's going to solve our problem. Correct. We have a pain. We have anxiety, for example, or we have some other mental health issue. We want that problem solved. They want it solved efficiently, permanently, as quickly as possible. That's what we want. So right. if, I, if, I, if I hang up a shingle and I say that I am you know, a psychologist, I'm a mental health professional and whatever my specialty might be, now not even special, whatever my title might be, whatever the letters are after my name, I don't care as a consumer as much. Um, but if I get my friend who says, hey, you have a child who has whatever issue it is, anorexia, and you know, this is, this is your guy for anorexia, then I'm much more excited. And that makes much more sense from a business perspective. Now let's go to the personality perspective. I'm actually thinking maybe we could connect both of them. Because, you know, so there are some people always gravitated as children 
you know, towards certain people. And when they were in a public gathering, there was one person who had a certain um, condition or challenge. Uh, so, and it, it could have been mental health, it could have been physical, it could have been anything. But sometimes there are certain people that are, they feel uncomfortable and they run away. And some people gravitate there. I'm just thinking out loud that there might be a way. But in your opinion, what do you think is the best way for someone to figure out if this is the right industry for them? And obviously, just one more thing, but then I'll let you talk. <laughs> and it, just financially, to make a decision to go into this just financially is not a good decision for the provider or for the consumer. I think you'll agree with that. You're probably better off in another field because it's the kind of field where um, if people are not investing in themselves continually, continuously and growing their own skill sets, then mm -hmm. um, if they're just looking to make a buck, then they might be good for a year or for two years or for three years, but eventually they start to slip and then their reputation starts to slip and then people, people aren't interested in, in their services or nobody responsible is gonna, is gonna, is gonna refer to them. Um, and that's also the scale of the practice that I was mentioning before is that people, the biggest, um, problem that I see with junior clinicians who are in the middle, like after that two year period and they're starting to launch is taking on too much. And there is a tremendous drive to, because you just invested, you know, five years of your life and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars into right. tuition. You want to hit the ground running. Yeah, and, and if you're not an expert in autism, you're like, I can do that. And if you're not an expert in marriage, you're like, I can do that. And if you're not an expert in you know, psychotic disorders, you know what, I think I can help. And then not only do they end up, unfortunately, messing, messing up their own reputations and their own businesses because they didn't focus, but actually it, 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 it can really hurt people's lives. Yeah, yeah it's like you're not a car mechanic where you need a, no. a transmission. It's a complex human being. And sometimes it's family systems, and sometimes it's shidduchim, and sometimes it's the shidduchim of their, right, the marriage of their kids or their grandkids or their siblings. And, and it's, uh, unfortunately, my offices in New York were routinely cleaning up messes that other people make. Um, it, you know, every week we get a new referral of somebody who's, oh, he's uh, my kid, he's been burnt out from therapy, he was in therapy for eight months and wasn't really going anywhere and doesn't want to go anymore. Um, but definitely really needs something. You know, can you fix it for us? You know, and now it's like going to be more work, more expense. And, you know, so I think that the number one thing is people who are grounded and they're not just trying to make a buck. I mean, it, you know, it seems like easy money. Like you said, I'm going to open up right. in my basement and I'll charge $100 an hour and I'll see 20, 30, 40 patients a week. And uh, or more, hundred fifty dollars an hour, or two hundred, and you do the math. But it, it's it's uh, I think it's scary when people do that kind of thing. For, so I, it works out for them financially in the end. Yeah, well, eventually, you know, you can only keep it up for that long. Right. Now, um, if someone is not genuinely um, in, invested in this, and when you you mentioned that someone has to be grounded, um, I would read into that and tell me if I'm overreading it that that means that someone has to be comfortable being themselves and sort of worked out within themselves uh, nobody's perfect and we're here to perfect ourselves further but someone really has reached a very um a significant level of you know coming within themselves into stepping into who they are 
and then it could be more beneficial to try to help other people. But if some of them themselves are not well grounded, then they they may just be shifting some of their problems onto their clients or worse. Unfortunately, that that happens. Fair okay. Exactly. Now moving on. Moving on to another point. I'm sorry. Are you in the middle of saying something? No, 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 no. I, I'm. You should be a psychologist. <laughs> Me. <laughs> well, you, no, got I don't right. be... you got it right. What I meant by grounded is what I meant. Got it. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think I should be a psychologist, but we'll take that uh, offline. What is the number one myth? The biggest myth that people think about this industry. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think people don't realize how much it takes to provide quality care and also how much support time there is. You don't just see patients for a 45 minute hour and then see another patient, you know, five minutes later. There's a lot of thought about what does this person need? What does their family need? What kind of assessments am I going to use? Um, what are my limits? Who can I collaborate with? I, I'm always on the phone speaking to my mentors, speaking to my, from graduate school, from, from my postdoc. I'm speaking to, still speaking to my mentors this weekend. Wow. I was just, you know, what do I do about this case? What do I do about that? And all that support time, you don't earn a dime for it. It's not, it's part not of your billable own, hours, not a billable hour. And, and it, there's a lot, if you want to do quality work, then you got to put in the time. And, um, Okay, I, that, I mean, that's a big deal. In other words, there's a lot of pre-work, there's a lot of post-work, that it's not just, you know, let's figure it out. I want to work eight hours a day. I can get in maybe not eight clients for an hour each, but let's say I could get seven pretty much back-to-back, 10 minutes for lunch, and let's do this. And I go home and forget about all of it. In order for, to be effective, I'm making sure I understand what you're saying. In order to be effective, you need to really uh, delve into this person. Obviously, you need to care and you need to be grounded, like you said before. And you need to figure out, okay, this person's going to come in soon. Let's let's remind ourselves. You know what was the situation? What what are they suffering with? How does it affect other people? And you know it's not so, it's not just ching ching. Um, again, it's okay to provide a service and and expect to be compensated appropriately. Then it's more it's more than okay. That's necessary for society to work. But like you said, it's it's not so simple that you just you know you just get up there and you you just see people on a couch. What's the big deal? Now, I want to move on to another point. Um, There are good parts and bad parts to every single job. Sure. What would you say is the best part of your job? Um, What is like the the moments that you look forward to and what are the moments that you dread? You know, here's another sort of myth. People often say like, how do you deal with so many people's issues? Don't you take it home? And my answer to that is I love it. And the reason I love it though is because I'm prepared for it. I'm trained in it. I, if I don't have an area of expertise, I either don't take on the case or I get the expertise that I need in a really serious way. And that's why it invigorates me. When I see a problem, um, it, it, it makes me excited about it. If I have a complicated case, that is the kind of thing where I'm like, bring it on. Yes, I'll meet with a family. I'll call in a consultation with someone else. I'll make it work. Wow. So it's not like, you know, Wow. I mean, that's it's interesting because this is the Love Your 9 to 5 show and you find this so many times in so many industries that, you know, some of the people who are adept at what it, whatever it is that, they're, that they do and they're trained and skilled, the more complex, the more exciting. It doesn't matter, you know, in other fields we've heard this, but that, that's interesting. I was not expecting to hear that. I was, I was expecting to hear something like, you know, the moment the client makes a breakthrough or, you know, when, when you could kind of reap the rewards of some hard work. But 
you're saying, and perhaps that is, you know, an enjoyable part, but really you're saying that when it's challenging and you have the skills and the, expert, and the expertise and the experience to meet those challenges and really help out and express those talents that are inside of you and your team, I mean, that's something which is very enjoyable for, for any professional. That's very, across industries, that's a really good point. Now, what about, what is the most challenging part of your, of your role? And let's not focus your role as the CEO of your company, but rather the role as a clinician. Yeah, as a clinician, I think um, it, it can be challenging to collaborate with other clinicians who um, are not well trained and don't have these attitudes towards it. I've seen some things that are really malpractice, borderline malpractice, um, things that are unethical. I've seen, um, and I'm talking about on the part of clinicians, but I, there's um, a rabbi who I'm close with, and I'm not going to mention his name because of what I'm about to quote him as saying. Okay. There's uh, all therapists can be uh, categorized into three groups and they're about the same size, a third, a third, a third. Okay. Some of them are good at what they do and thank God that they're in the field. They're talented. They're skilled. They know their area. They know what they can do. They know what they can't do. And they're, they're good. A third of them are inept and they, they mean well, they are in, they have well intentions, um, at least partially, but they're not, um, well-skilled. They have gotten general skills. They haven't gotten specific skills Mm -hmm. Um, and they are potentially dangerous. Um, but, um, you know, by and large, there's just a lack of, uh, effectiveness. Okay. And the last third, take a guess. The last third are the cons. Completely crazy. Um, and I've seen some pretty, some pretty insane things. I saw somebody who was providing marriage therapy to her niece and her husband, um, in what would happen is every couple weeks, they would actually, the niece and the husband would come for Shabbos to the person's house. Okay. They would get this. They would stay in the room where they were doing therapy and sleep on the couch. So that's, that's just wrong in so many ways. Um, there's so many boundary violations there. Um, I've seen, I mean, that's, that's on the light side of things. Um, so that drives me crazy. It drives me nuts. And that's one of the hardest things I've seen is where I'm collaborating with another clinician on a complicated case. And that person is making a mess of my client's life. Now, well, just so we understand, so the listeners understand, um, and also the example that you mentioned, are you talking about people who are purposely taking advantage of people who are suffering with mental health issues or people who are just so inept and lacking skill and sensitivity that they're just doing things that are just outright stupid. I think it's more the latter, but it's to the point of malpractice and actually like lacking, lacking. I don't think they're actual charlatans. I think they're just so unstable that they have really bad judgment. Um, and that gets under my skin. And wow. Now, Okay. I mean, th- those are big numbers. Like, I mean, a yeah, third, it's great it's that. Right. I don't think the numbers are right. I think it's probably 20% are in the first category. Um, You're making it worse. N- well, no, no, no. <laughs> I think, I think the majority are in that middle category. Okay. Uh, okay. Probably 50 to 60%. And then the last, um, maybe 10, 10, 15% in the last category. Those numbers don't add up to a hundred, but you know, yeah. 
bottom line. This is psychology. This is this is the concept, right? It, it doesn't have to be exact. We're dealing with human emotions and human makeup. Now, um, the question is now just from a more of a business standpoint. Okay. Um, where do, uh, let's say I'm a clinician. I go through this. We've determined based on some of the things that we've discussed here and based on some self um, some self-work that maybe this is a career that is for me. When I say me, I don't mean me. I mean me, the listener, or whoever it may be. Now, I went to, Are you trying to tell me something? There? No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm not. Uh, now, let's assume that, you know, if someone starts off, they want to go out into private practice, they've already gone all the years and the training and everything that we spoke about, they've done. You know, what would, be, what would you say is like the number one first step that they should do towards starting their first practice and really starting to get a flow of of customers to get you know to be able to reach the people that they're most suited to help i'll tell you exactly what they should do invest in yourself the market knows it's a crazy thing i've seen this over and over again in my office in new york we hire somebody who has a certain set of expertise and within two weeks with no marketing we start getting calls for that very thing it's almost as if the market knows that there's somebody there who can help them. If you have skills to be able to help somebody else, then people are going to call you. How does that work? I, I don't know. I think there's divine intervention there, frankly, but uh, you know, people need help. There, are, there is such a growing need for mental health services today. And if you have a skill set, you're gonna get business. Um, wow. wow. So really, so really it means doing the pre-work like we spoke about earlier and really understanding who you are and what niche you are best suited to serve. I mean, right. that really will, uh, will allow the market to have an indication as, uh, you know, as, as to who you can help the best. Now, right. are there any particular um, resources, uh, maybe a particular piece of software, you know, for someone who's already um, has their own private practice and they're trying to kind of streamline things. And we'll go, we're all over the place here, but I'm really trying to focus on the listener here who's maybe already a little bit further on and already has a career and already is, has their own office. Any particular software or online resources that you find that is, you know, immeasurably helpful in either day-to-day -day, uh, management of the, from the business side or maybe even from the clinical side? Yeah, sure. Uh, no problem. Let's say somebody's opening up a private practice. We use um, a couple of software um, uh, in-house that are very helpful. One of them is called Theranest, kind of quirky name, but Theranest is a EHR, it's an electronic health record, and it also doubles as a billing system. Okay. Um, the credit card rates are reasonable, and uh, which is a big thing because that saves a lot of money over the long term. And uh, the service is online, so that way in terms of doing clinical notes, and it's HIPAA compliant. So um, let's say you don't have to do them at the office. You can go home and you can complete your notes. You can even do them on a handheld, although it's you know, not great, but you can at least access the notes. So mm. for example, let's say a patient calls you on your neuron vacation in Florida, and you really need to know what the story is, and you left the file at home. So you have your electronic health record, your EHR, log into Theranest on your, on your device. Boom, you got the entire file there. And if they need to see you, then you can do a, you can do an, another entry right then and there. Got it. Now, how do you spell that? Just so we'll, we'll put everything in the show notes, but just sure. can you spell that? E-R-A-N-E-S-T. Theranest. Theranest. Okay, excellent. I mean, I know from the nursing home world, I mean, that's the, that has become mandatory. Right. Uh, oh, but, you know, I've, in the beginning when I started here, you know, everything was pretty much still on paper. 
but now that's that that is industry standard um you know that that is how it has to be and again of course we have all the those conveniences now someone is another one we use is called psych surveys p-s-y-c-h surveys okay r-v-y-s psych surveys is cool because it, it it actually helps us to methodically track the progress of every single patient at every single session um it's what does that mean? How does, it, how does it do that? Well, we have we primarily focus on anxiety at Center for Anxiety, as you might have guessed, right. um, but also depression and also some risk factors because we do a lot of dialectical behavior therapy and do intensive outpatient work. So people who need um, not quite hospital level of care, but a step down. Let's say they need two or three weeks of intensive care. Okay. So there are more risk factors like the self injury and the you know suicidal behavior and things like that. So we have um, measures of those three constructs that every patient does in every session. And then if there's a problem, then we get alerted to it and we can log in and we can see it. Um, it's, it's, uh, we find it very helpful for tracking progress and, and the, the software company has been really wonderful to work with. Awesome, awesome. So now if, uh, if the listeners want to you know, continue following uh, some of your activities and your and you know your business and some of your writings what is the best way for them to um for them to learn a little bit more about your practice and what you do great we are on the web of course at center for anxiety one word dot org center for anxiety dot org okay and that, that is the best place for them to find you and for them to see everything about your business yep okay I- awesome now w- I, I know we, uh, I've taken a significant amount of time over here already, but just to wrap this up, just one, if, if, do you have any one final thought to going back to the person who's still on the fence as to whether this is the right um, direction for them to take their career or not? Um, anything that you would want to share with them to help them either determine if this is the right industry for them or maybe they're better off going somewhere else? Yeah, I'll give you one, one more final nugget, which I think is really specific to the community. There are a couple of organizations that um, make referrals within the community to mental health. And what I found from working with them is that um, you can get on their good side for a little while, but then not necessarily, you know, after a while. And they don't necessarily, they don't follow um, what you're doing currently. People's practices Mm -hmm. change. Sometimes they get better into this. Sometimes they move into a different area. Sometimes they get another area of expertise. And if, you know, sometimes clinicians think, oh, that person's going to send me everyone or that doctor is going to send me everyone. You really can't bank on one or two or even three or four referral sources. The best way to build a practice is have a good set of skills. If you do, people will come. In terms of referral sources, they come and they go because sometimes, you know, people fall into favor or out of favor um, with other people because of a lack of knowledge or just because we're human beings. Um, so again, I think it comes down to quality. Focus on yourself. And uh, and that's the number one piece of advice that I can give. Okay, awesome. Awesome. I mean, it's, like, it's definitely like that in, in my world, in the nursing home world. There's nothing like that in other areas too. You could be good with a hospital for a while, then eventually, you know, one incident happens or a change of positions and that case manager moved out or whatever change of ownership um and that definitely can affect everything 
Dr. Osman, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Um, I know this will be very, very helpful for anybody on the fence and anybody who's in, in the process along the way. And thank you so much for sharing so generously of your time and your experience. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.